Hi, this is the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm Gary Zacharias. I want to introduce you to a family of books. There are three of them. It's called Understanding the Times. It's a series, and you can find three of them right now in the series. There may be more coming. I hope so. They're really, really good. Um, the first one is Understanding the Faith, a survey of Christian apologetics. And that's one that I'm going to be talking about a little bit more today. And they said uh, it's, it's a good one to better understand theology and apologetics. Second one is Understanding the Times, a survey of competing worldviews. Um, I've spoken quite a bit on worldviews, and usually just for the sake of simplicity, I'll introduce just two and compare them, Christianity and secularism. But, of course, there are other worldviews. In this book, Understanding the Times, a survey of competing worldviews, looks at several worldviews and compares them in areas like economics and politics and science and things like that. It does a great job. third one is called Understanding the Culture, a survey of social challenges. That's the one I don't have, and so I'm going to be looking for that one. The author of this series is Jeff Myers, and he's, uh, he's really considered to be a respected authority on youth leadership development. He's uh, involved with Summit Ministries there and uh, lives there at Summit Ministries. I tell you, that's a great organization. If you've got some kids who might be interested in uh, getting a little further foundation in Christianity and, and not be rocked by the world and what it's going to tell them. And so under uh, the back page there, under uh, some other information it talks about, it's based on Summit Ministries' half-century of teaching. It says this is your definitive resource for deepening and defending your faith. It says it should be a required resource for every Christian's bookshelf. And that is so true, definitely. Now, it's, it's pricey because it's a, a nice paperback, but it's something you can keep for years and years and years. I'll just give you real quickly what uh, the big picture is of the whole thing, and then I want to focus on one particular chapter, as I always do. There would be just so much to talk about. But it talks about what the Bible is and isn't. Another chapter, does the Bible have authority? What does the Bible say about God? And then the big story that's in the Bible, what the God says about loving God, what it says about loving our neighbors. And then it gets into things like supernatural good and evil. And then questions like, isn't Christianity anti-science? Isn't claiming truth intolerant? Why is there evil and suffering? What's the deal with hell? Is God a mean bully? Have you heard that one? That's gotten to be very popular, That the, especially the Old Testament God is a, is a bully. He's going around beating up all these poor Canaanites. Is, if Christianity is true, why do people walk away from it? So these are the issues that this book deals with. And I'm going to take one that's a, a tough one that we all struggle with as Christians. It's chapter 15 called, What's the Deal with Hell? And uh, he says, as he starts this, Meyer says, Christianity would be far more attractive for a lot of people if it didn't include the doctrine of hell. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. But he starts off in this chapter and he says, let's begin with this. One's discomfort with an idea or teaching has no bearing on how well-grounded or true the idea actually is. That's a good point, isn't it? Just because we're uncomfortable with it doesn't make it false. It just means it's a tough issue. We have to grapple with it. And he says, uh, hell's seriousness actually serves to underscore the immensity of God's mercy. He says, what the human race needs is not just a cosmic pat on the head before being sent out to play. We need saving, and we can't rescue ourselves. 
good heavens, isn't that the truth? When I speak on worldviews, that's one of the points I make, that Christianity offers us a way out that doesn't involve us doing things. I mean, if we're really honest, we think about, well, I can't live up to the Ten Commandments. No kidding. We can't live up to our own standards. I don't care what standards you have. They may even be low standards. You know, try not to kill somebody today. But whatever our standards are, we can't live up to those. No wonder we have a lot of guilt. We know we can't rescue ourselves. Okay, so then he starts off and he says, uh, as far as what hell really is like and what it, how it's described, he says, you know, we get tempted to approach this topic based on what we think rather than what God thinks. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we, <laughs> we have our views. And then what is it that God teaches? Well, he says, does the Bible actually teach the doctrine of hell? Yes, it does. Matthew 5, 22. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. In Matthew 23, verse 33, Jesus condemns religious leaders. And he says, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Ooh. He says, usually there's a, I say he, I'm talking about Jeff Myers now, that the teaching of hell is usually presented in the context of judgment. For example, in Matthew 25, 46, Jesus talks about these different fates of the wicked and the righteous. And he says, the wicked go away into eternal punishment. So that seems to be an expression of God's wrath. And that's the whole point. Something terrible is out there. And that's why Jesus came and, and rescued us. Revelation 20 talks about, um, I saw a great white throne and people show, uh, are showing up there and books are opened, the book of life and people get judged and death and Hades even give up uh, the dead and they're judged. And it says, then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written on the, in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So the Bible talks about it quite a bit. And you know something I find fascinating? People say, well, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger. But Jesus is such, he's so sweet. He's the lamb. He's the sweet little lamb. Well, who spoke the most on hell in the Bible? Jesus did. So there goes that idea. It's not an Old Testament versus New Testament concept. Myers now moves to how is hell described? Knows what phrases, what pictures are given well, it's called a place of outer darkness. That's in Matthew 8 and 22. It's called outside the gate of the city of God. That's Revelation 22. It's away from the presence of the Lord. That's in Matthew 25. It's outside in the dark forever. Matthew 8 and Jude 13. The perpetually burning dump, Mark 9. And if you think about that one, of course, outside the city that Jesus was preaching, there was a dump where they just kept the fires burning forever because there was... So much trash that always got thrown in there. Jesus could use that as a symbol of hell, that eternally burning dump. It's a place of anguish and regret. That's Luke 16, the parable that Jesus tells. And it's eternal separation from God. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas say something about hell. And that's who Myers then turns to. <clears throat> this is a quote from the two of them. The Bible's picture of hell indicates that upon death, some people will be translated into a different, non-spatial mode of existence. They will be conscious, 
they'll wait a resurrection of their bodies, at which time they'll be banished from heaven and secured in hell, where they will experience unending conscious exclusion from God, his people, and anything of value. Then they say this banishment will include conscious sorrow, shame, and anguish to differing degrees, depending on the person's life on earth. So, did Jesus speak about this? It sounds pretty uh, grim, doesn't it? Yes, he did. Now, he's the one who used those figures of speech. He used uh, ideas of fire and darkness and punishment from God's presence and wrath. But, of course, the question then is, well, is that really physical? Are people going to be roasted there forever? Is that what we're talking about? This says, if you take this as a figure of speech, though, he says, that seems odd if it's physical. He said, hell has flames, but it says it's dark. It's, it's a place where people remain, but seems to be bottomless. The ones that go there would never stop falling, so it can't be literal. And uh, Norm Geisler, for example, Myers uh, mentions him, he believes those references are figures of speech to describe the kind of torment there rather than physical conditions. So a more spiritual or mental anguish, you know, maybe real regret, an abiding sense of loss that people have when they go there. Then here's another question that comes up. Is it forever or not? Well, Daniel 12 says, Many sleep uh, who are sleeping in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25, Jesus talks about this uh, parable, what's going to happen at the end of time. And he says, the ones that are rejected go away into eternal punishment, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so it's kind of interesting that it seems to be parallel there, that there's we, we believe the righteous are going to go on forever. Well, in that passage, it seems like it's the eternal uh, punishment for those that do evil as well. So what's the purpose of hell? This seems odd, doesn't it, for initially to think about a loving God. He's just, he's compassionate, and he's wrathful. He's all these things at the same time. But, you know, people can be that way too. I mean, think about a mom, Meyer says. Think about a mom. She shows her love for a child by opposing a molester or a missionary demonstrates his love for the oppressed by testifying against people that kidnap children and force them to be soldiers. A district attorney expresses her love for justice by arguing passionately for strict punishment for a criminal who's been terrorizing a neighborhood. I mean, after all, if you overlook all of this stuff, if you overlook uh, if you say, well, I'm a God of love, I overlook your offense, it'd be an outrage. Justice involves setting things right. If you fail to have justice, that's not loving, that's injustice. And to argue against hell is actually to argue against justice. Uh, somebody made the, a good point here. He quotes from Kenneth Boa and Robert Bowman. They said the purpose of hell, what is it? Not to make those who go there better people or help them see the error of their ways and come to repentance. So it's not like the Betty Ford Clinic. It's not even like a modern prison where you encourage them to get rehabilitated. What do you do there? You punish. It's about retribution, not restoration. So is hell just then? Here's another question that comes up that Myers tackles. The punishment of hell seems maybe too severe. You know, somebody just has some minor sins in their finite lifetime they're going to pay forever in hell couldn't god just annihilate those souls 
Well, Myers quotes from Pastor Tim Keller, and I like Tim a lot. Here's what he has to say. Modern people think hell works like this. God gives us time, but if we haven't made the right choices by the end of our lives, he casts our soul into hell for all eternity. And then those poor souls, as they go, they're crying out for mercy, but God says, too late. You had your chance. Now you're suffering. It says this caricature misunderstands the very nature of evil. The biblical picture is that sin separates us from the presence of God. Presence of God. That's where all joy is and all love and wisdom and good things. That's where, that's what we were created for. Uh, it's only before God's face that we're going to thrive and flourish. So the desire to be free of God's presence is what sin is all about. We can't assume. He says that those who reject Christ are going to come to their senses and change once they're in hell. People are on a trajectory and they're, they're getting harder of hearts. He says people probably continue to sin there. Their rebellion hasn't ceased. They don't want God. He says, uh, one person says, maybe we should think of hell as a place where people continue to rebel, continue to insist on their own way, continue structures of prejudice and hate. They defy the living God. And as they continue to fight defy God that he continues to punishment so we get this cycle going on forever so their sin constitutes an eternal debt how about question five or point number five that he's bringing up in this book let me go back I want to make sure people understand the points that he's talking about here so let's go through some of his issues so the first one is he calls it a problem of hell then the second section of what the Bible say about hell Third section is, uh, let me get there, I missed a page, sorry about that. Third section is, what's the purpose of hell? Fourth section is, hell just. Now the fifth section is, ultimately, those who go to hell know why they're there. It's not foisted upon somebody that's unsuspecting. Doo -doo -doo, they're just going about their day and boom, they're thrown into hell. It's a place where the unrepentant finally get what they want, Meyer says. They want to be apart from God. A drowning person, he says, who refuses a life ring is not going to have any righteous cause to blame the lifeguard for his predicament. You know, when I read that, I think about uh, Christopher Hitchens. When he talks about how he saw God, he talked about him as a North Korean dictator. So can you imagine if God said, I'll get rid of hell and I'll bring Christopher Hitchens into my presence and let him spend eternity with me. I mean, does anybody want to spend eternity with a North Korean dictator? No, absolutely not. And so it says, this is a place where the unrepentant get what they want, to be apart from God. That's exactly what Christopher Hitchens has said. He doesn't want to be around what he sees as a dictator. It says, it does seem that over the course of their lives, people establish their destination kind of like a crew laying down railroad tracks. Tim Keller again said Hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into eternity. It's kind of like an addiction. They choose the addiction at first, but then the addiction takes over their life and everything becomes uh, disintegrated at that point. Here's the sixth area. Myers brings up this question. Why can't God just forgive everyone? Right? If he's loving, and he is, he's angry at the bad things we do. Keller says, all loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath, not just despair, but because of their love. If you love a person and you see someone ruining them, even if they're ruining themselves, you get angry. So God's nature is love and justice. He can forgive, 
not just ignore our sins. He can forgive them. He's got some questions about uh, hell. He calls it answers to tough questions. Does God send children to hell? And uh, theologian John MacArthur believes that those who are innocent of willful sin and rebellion will be saved. He says, now remember this is John MacArthur talking, children who die before they reach a state of moral awareness and culpability, you know, before they understand sin and corruption, where they are actually sinning deliberately, he said, are graciously saved eternally. And I won't go into the details of that because I'm running a little long on this answer here. What about people who've never heard of Jesus? He says, Scripture tells us God is gracious and just, so we've, we've got to think about that. And he has a whole section here about what Jonathan Morrow says by looking at what the Bible says about God's nature. It says he's compassionate. He says we all need a Savior. Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Nobody can be saved apart from the knowledge of Christ. God does desire all to be saved. But notice this, God has revealed himself to the whole world in creation and human consciousness, in our conscience, right? That people are without excuse. And God's spirit is at work in the world, convicting the world of sin. And we're commanded to take the gospel to the whole world. And he says, God has providentially arranged the world so that people might seek him, that everyone who seeks him will find him. He says, if you look in Revelation 7, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation in God's eternal kingdom. He says the awful reality of hell indicates that not everyone is saved in the end and there is no second chance after death to accept the gospel. He says we don't know and I think it's a really good answer. We don't know whether people who have never heard the gospel will be saved but he says we know two things. God is just and nobody's beyond his reach and God is gracious in saving many that deserve to be condemned. So, toward the end of the chapter, he says, we are left with some mystery when it comes to saying exactly how God will work out his plan for salvation among the nations. We have to trust in his goodness and justice. Will not the judge of the earth do right? See, I think that's really important. Based on what we know about God's goodness, we know he's not going to trick somebody into hell or keep somebody from knowing and tossing them into hell. He says, this is a good point, one does not miss heaven by a hair, but by constant effort to avoid and escape God. Yeah, that's really a good one there. Well, there is a question about annihilation. Some people believe you get annihilated when you go uh, to hell and you know, you're gone. But he says that doesn't script, uh, fit scripture very well. John 5, 28, 29 talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Well, how can that be if the unjust had been annihilated? And Paul talks about the punishment is eternal destruction. So I thought that was a good way of responding to that. What about universalism, that God's going to save people even after they die, maybe? He said, well, that's hopeful, but it's at odds with everything that we understand to be true from Scripture about uh, death and salvation and judgment. How could we say that people are free to reject God in this lifetime, but somehow after death they're no longer free? Is that consistent with God's nature? To take no during a person's life, but then force them to love him after death? Okay, well, there's a lot to cover in this chapter. And I'd love to spend more time with it. It's just <clears throat> I don't want to extend this too long. So overall, people are rejecting Christ because they have desperately wicked hearts. We're all wicked. We're all wicked. So rejecting Christianity because one is offended by clumsy arguments is an excuse. That's not a reason. 
He says people that go to hell will know why they're there. C.S. Lewis says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels right to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. So what's our reaction? What should our reaction be? Meyer says, recognize that most people don't take hell as seriously as they should. Most people don't think they're all that bad. Well, we can confront them uh, very easily with that. I've I've got a talk on that one, but I won't take the time now. Secondly, he says, we as Christians need to become familiar with the biblical doctrines of heaven and hell. So this should give you just a flavor for this book. It's um, rich. It's got so much material. Again, it's called Understanding the Faith, a survey of Christian apologetics. Jeff Myers is the author. Summit Ministries is behind this. Again, very powerful book, something I think you all would enjoy. Well, thanks for joining me for this podcast. Hope to see you again in the future.